Okay. Well, welcome everyone to this very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. I'm Deb Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And in addition to all of you seated here, we'd like to welcome our colleagues who are joining us online. For those of you who are online, uh, if you have any questions during the presentation, you can email them to Judy Langhans, and that's judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at hitchcock.org, and she will share your questions with the speakers at the end of the presentation. We want you to know that neither our speakers nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Today's presentation is entitled The Voices of Organ Donation and Transplantation, Perspectives from a Donor, Family, and Recipients. The presentation will focus on the importance of organ and tissue donation. At the conclusion of this learning activity, you should be able to apply this new knowledge and data to your practice by engaging in greater collaboration between the New England Donor Services and Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I would now like to introduce the facilitator of this learning activity, Karen Lord. Karen is an advanced practice donation specialist at the New England Organ Bank. She holds a master's degree in nursing from the University of New Hampshire. Karen has worked for the New England Organ Bank for many years and is truly passionate about this work. Karen will be introducing our additional presenters today. And please uh, join me in welcoming Karen to the podium. Thank you. Um, really, thank you all for coming today. Um, this is a very, very uh, special event uh, for us here at Dartmouth. Um, it's a special month where we celebrate extra uh, about organ and tissue donation. And today, I, I think it is it speaks so much when you hear our presenters about what a difference organ and tissue donation makes uh, in the lives of people, uh, not only for the donor families who give this incredible gift, uh, but also the impact that it makes on the people that they help. And not any of this happens without your help. There are the people that we see at the bedside, the nurses who are the people who are the catalyst for uh, helping us to uh, make donation possible for those families in the critical care units. It's also the people that uh, do x-rays, that work in the blood bank, social workers. It is an incredible large number of people who make this happen. So whatever your job is here at Dartmouth around organ and tissue donation and the other support that you have for families, thank you so much uh, for doing that and for coming today. I would be more than happy at any time to come to any meetings that you have to talk about uh, the process of around donation, but today it really is to hear the voices of those who um, have been impacted. So I'm going to introduce them um, and then we'll hear uh, their story. Um, Carrie Bogie's husband uh, was an organ donor, so Carrie will be sharing that uh, with us. Um, Next to her um, is Kelly George. 
Uh, and Kelly George has had a heart transplant. And she also has a connection here to Dartmouth um, with one of the tra uh, physicians who's here. And I'm sure she'll share that with you as well. Uh, Kathy Hall had a lung transplant. And again, to hear her uh, incredible story, she actually came and shared her story along with Kelly to our respiratory therapists who were like, as you know, they worked so hard to have uh, lungs stay healthy. And so um, um, Kathy will share that with us. And Carmen, who um, I think she held onto the side of her seat as we were driving here today, because I, I warned her that this was like a prelude to the Indy 500. And I think, you know, she's just taking a deep breath and thank goodness we're here. Um, but she did have her seatbelt on. I think she was, she was looking for a helmet. Um, <laughs> but Carmen's going to share with us. Um, her face transplant. And again, Carmen was a nurse here at Dartmouth and has a special connection to this institution. And before I stop, because we want to hear from them, is I would just like to introduce Helen Nelson, who is our Senior Vice President of Organ Donation Services at the New England Organ Bank. And um, Denise Batchelor, who is the team leader for the North team and works a lot and has worked a lot with Dartmouth uh, throughout the years. And then at the, after uh, this, we will, Helen will be presenting Dartmouth an award. And then um, at the very end, we're going to go out and we're going to raise a donate, donate life flag out on the flagpole. We do this each year. Again, it's symbolizing, again, the great gift that uh, donor families have given. So first, I think, uh, Carrie, it would be fabulous if we could start with you as you talk. <laughs> Uh-oh, she rolled her eyes. Uh, uh, and you have a microphone, right? Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, can everybody hear me? Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Um, so yes, I am Carrie Bogey, and my husband, um, I'm sorry. I promise I'll get through it once I get through the first years. Um, my husband was Nicholas Bogey, and it was six years ago that he passed away at this hospital, so that's why it's really hard for me to be here. Um, I've avoided this place as much as I could possible. Um, he was 26 years old, and he was um, killed in a logging accident. The moment that I got the call from his mother that Nick was in an accident, my heart just broke. And I remember I was at work, and I am a preschool teacher. And I just stopped, and all the children looked at me, and I just had to leave the room, and I ran out, and I, um, I was told to walk to the end of the driveway, and that someone was going to come pick me up and bring me to the hospital. And as I was standing there with one of my coworkers, a dart flew over. <laughs> and knowing that your husband was inside of that was horrible. And once we got to the hospital, we were rushed into a room and we were told that things didn't look good and that there was bleeding and swelling on his brain and that they immediately brought him into surgery and they were trying to relieve all the pressure and the swelling and everything. And I just got really hopeful and I said, it's okay, it's Nick, he's 26, we have a baby boy and he's going to pull through. And we were here for two days, sleeping overnight here, not leaving his side, talking to him every second that I could, our family was all here. Um, and, you know, we brought our son here just to try to get anything, <laughs> anything that we could out of Nick. And um, in the meantime, to add just one more 
crazy thing to our story is that I had a gut feeling that I might be pregnant. And I found out in one of these restrooms that that was true. So not only did we have a 15-month-old son, but I was pregnant. And he didn't know. And I went to his bedside and I begged him and I begged him to please wake up. And there was no way that I was going to be left with it. two children now. And um, on March 31st at 4 p.m., I said goodbye to Nick. And it was the hardest thing that I ever did. But here I am, six years later, sharing his story. And I've shared his story all over Vermont, all over New England, all the way to California and back. And that's because I chose to donate his organs. And the first moment that they asked me if I wanted to donate Nick's organs, I had all those feelings of, are you kidding me? You're asking me this right now? My husband is dying. I'm a grieving widow. I just found out I'm pregnant. And I was angry, and I was frustrated, and I just walked out of the room. And it wasn't until about probably, I don't know, an hour later, one of Nick's brothers came up to me, and he said, what do you think Nick would do in this situation? And I immediately said, I know what he would do. He would, he would want us to donate his organs, because he was just that amazing of a person, that he would help anybody, even if it was a complete stranger. And so we got everyone back into the room, and I said, okay, let's go ahead and let's do this. And I wish I knew the man's name that was there that day, because he was amazing. He was honest with me. He was caring. He let me swear as much as I wanted to at him. And he was just amazing. And it's that reason that I chose to donate Nick's organs, because of the people that work. Sorry, it used to be New England Organ Bank, and it's not anymore, but I'm going to say that a lot. <laughs> um, that work for them really just helped me make this amazing decision. And I have, I am just so proud that we did this. You know, what I talk a lot about when I go around and share our story is the fact that um, Nick was not an organ donor. I was not an organ donor. I had never thought about it. I had no connections to organ donation whatsoever. It never crossed my mind, and I just, I just wasn't an organ donor. And so that's something that I share with families. I say, you know, if, if you know that you want to be an organ donor, please, like, check yes on your license or, you know, register online. But more importantly, please talk to your family. Because at 24 years old, having to make a decision like that that you never think you're going to make was extremely, extremely hard. And um, I, I guess I just want people to look at me and say, wow, like, look how well she's doing. And look where I, I could have gone. I could have gone down a really dark road. And instead, I didn't. I got out of that dark place, and I shared his story. Within two months, I was here sharing Nick's story. Um, we were chosen as um, we were chosen to represent what used to be New England Organ Bank in the Rose Parade. Nick's face, Grace, um, was a florograph and was on the float in 2013, and um, that brought me so much closer to like myself and my grief and handling my grief and going through all of that and. Um, Actually, just last week, my daughter, who's now five, her name's Bryn Nicholas, by the way, um, she went with me to a hospital, and we had a donate life table. And I sat there at one point, and someone came over to talk to us, and I just started crying, because I couldn't imagine if someone said, hey, guess what? In six years, you and Bryn are going to be there, and you're going to be sharing Nick's story. I would have said, you're crazy. 
Like, I can't imagine doing that. was always really kind of shy and didn't want to put myself out there. Um, and now I look back and I, and I just look at all that I've done and that I've accomplished, and I am, I am proud of myself. And I have continued on with my life. I met another man. Oh, my God, she's married. Yeah, I'm married again. <laughs> and everybody, you know, I, I just put the judgment aside because I knew that Nick would want me to be happy. I would want him to be happy if he was in my shoes. And I found a man that is just so wonderful and caring, and he comes to all these events with me, and he shares Nick's story to complete strangers. He's gotten people to register to be organ donors. He's accepted our, our children as his own, and we have a child together now, and we've just made this huge circle, and I just, I just can't stress enough like how the organ donation part of this has helped me so much in the grieving process. We, last year, was the fifth anniversary, and it was like a, a big, you know, a big number. And I looked at um, my sisters, who are my rocks, and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of done celebrating this as Nick's death day. And you know what I want to do? I want to start celebrating it as the life day of all those people that he saved. I want the kids to, okay, this is, yes, the last day that we saw Daddy, that we talked to Daddy, but guess what? He saved seven people's lives. So instead of, you know, us releasing a balloon, we've released balloons. So the past two years, we've released seven balloons for those lives that he saved. Um, we turned a really dark, dark day into something really exciting and really amazing. Um, and hearing your, you know, teeny tiny kids try to say organ donation is really cute too. <laughs> so they'll try to share it with people that their daddy was an organ donor or such. Um, but I just, I am really, um, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of myself and our whole family. Um, it's just a true testament of what one decision um, can really do to your life in the darkest hours. So thank you. Thank you. Oh, gosh. That's hard to go after. <laughs> and I admire you so much for doing that without your script. Um, heart disease has impacted my family for generations. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cardiovascular disease has caused mothers and fathers to outlive their children and children to grow up without either a mom or a dad. And um, in my immediate family, I've lost my father, my brother, and my sweet mom to both of these diseases. Uh, I was diagnosed with HCM at the age of 12 when the doctors put a name to my mom's um, heart issues. And looking back, I now realize that um, I adjusted my activities to compensate um, for my condition. And I hated hiking or sports because my heart rate would quickly elevate and I would have difficulties. And I really didn't think much of these difficulties because it was normal to me. This is what I saw my mom go through and it's just something that I've lived with all my life. Um, so I went on with my life making these adjustments until one uh, evening I fainted while walking in my neighborhood. And that was the start of testing, an EP study. And um, I received an ICD. And having an ICD, um, I was always aware of what I was doing and how I felt, um, my surroundings and how they might affect uh, my ICD. And it was definitely something 
that took over my thoughts. Uh, and though it was scary at times, it was also comforting knowing that I had this device that should my heart uh, go into irregular rhythms, that it was there to save me. Um, that happened twice, and my ICD did fire and likely saving my life. My heart disease progressed into heart failure, and my journey with my DHMC heart failure team with Dr. Kono began. Um, I don't know, didn't know or couldn't admit how sick I had actually become, and I know that was a source of frustration for him. Um, my medications increased to help deal with AFib, blood pressure, and overall heart um, function. Um, my diet was very difficult to manage, and any amount of sodium would cause great difficulties. I experienced shortness of breath, dizziness, um, and exercise intolerance. And there were nights when I slept sitting in a sitting position to help deal with the fluid in my lungs. My lips and fingernails would at times turn blue. My hands and feet were always cold, and I just felt old. And to me, heart failure was depressing, frightening, and lonely. And while I might have looked healthy enough on the outside, on the inside I was screaming for enough oxygen to take that next breath. Nine years after that fainting spell and after two ICDs, uh, Dr. Kono sat me and my husband down and told us that within a year, maybe two, I would need a heart to survive. That was so difficult to hear and I'm sure difficult to say and I was very reluctant to be listed because in my thoughts, um, for me to survive, it meant that a family would have lost a loved one. And moreover, how could I tell my son, who was then 18, with the same heart condition that that's what was happening with me? Um, after a year of testing at both DHMC and Tufts Medical Center and an EF of about 12%, I agreed to be on the heart transplant list. And now some people uh, wait years for an organ and some die waiting. Uh, there just are not enough organs to meet the need. And I was just the lucky one that after five weeks I received the gift of my borrowed heart. Um, and two weeks of recovery at Tufts brought me home to my family and celebrating the holidays. And while I have rejoiced in my continued life, I've also mourned the greatest loss that my donor family has had to endure. And my donor is with me with every activity I do, with every birthday, anniversary, and holiday that I celebrate. And I live a different life now. My recovery has been a miracle, really. I'm able to enjoy every day. Um, I've climbed up mountains and raced down ski slopes. I exercise, I travel. In a few days, I'll turn 53, which is an age I never thought attainable for me. Um, I've watched my sons turn 30 and 27. Um, and in a few months, I will celebrate my 34th wedding anniversary with a man who um, cared for me when I couldn't care for myself. That makes me cry. <laughs> um, transplantation is an amazing journey and one that makes you stronger in all aspects of your life. And I am so thankful for my donor family who seven years ago was so um, unselfish to give up those organs to me. Thank you.
Um, Mary starts, I want to think, I called her Kathy, and I apologize. I don't know if my sister's with me today or not. She's Kathy, but okay. came into my head, so I apologize. Mary, but <laughs> Thank you. So welcome. Thank you. My name is Mary. <laughs> I'm 62 years old. I have three grown children and four beautiful grandchildren. My youngest son just got married in August last year, and I am hoping for more of the same. More grandchildren, please. Um, I'm a volunteer with New England Donor Services, and the reason I am a volunteer is because I received a lung transplant in August of 2014. Um, in that same month, a beautiful young girl, 20 years old, uh, the pride of her parents, uh, an exceptional beauty, and from what her mother tells me, uh, a beautiful person inside, always giving. Um, she used to say that she had two hands, one for herself and one for giving to others. So when she got her first driving license, it was a no-brainer for her to uh, to sign up as an organ donor. It's a simple act, but it's a wonderfully generous and loving thing to do for your fellow human beings. Um, Caitlin was run over by a car um, on August 20th. At that time, um, I had, uh, the, the previous June, I had qualified for um, organ transplant at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, I had gone through six months of, you know, the extensive medical testing, and I always joked that I managed to fool them on the psychiatric evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bit on my enthusiasm for the transplant, because to tell you the truth, at that time I was not loving life. My my husband at the time had multiple myeloma. I needed an oxygen tank to get from A to B. I had to sit in a a uh, handy, you know, the handicap things when you go shopping, and I felt like I was 90 years old. I was not enjoying life, and the reason I really went ahead and did it is because my family wanted me to very badly. They had lost their father to um, cancer at the age of 54, and I really didn't want to, even though they were grown, I just didn't want them to have to go through that grief. I wanted to be there for my mother, and um, I went ahead with the transplant. It was no picnic, and um, but it was a very successful transplant. Um, Caitlin's lung um, blew up the first time. That's what they say. Um, it was she didn't smoke, um, and my recovery only lasted about. I mean, my, recovery, my total recovery took about a year, but I was back home within a few weeks, just like, like you are. And um, I am eternally grateful to the donor family, um, both for myself and for my entire family. My life has turned around. I have become much more family-oriented. I, I it, it wasn't instant that I say, here I am, I'm better, I'm now going to enjoy life. It took a while. It took a while to get that joy of life back and that, you know, that ability to just go out and be myself and uh, enjoy life. This year alone, I, try, I spent two months in Ireland uh, with my mother 
I spent six weeks with my grandchildren. Um, my youngest grandchild, Do uh, Libby, was born after the transplant. So without that transplant, I never would have known that child. And now she puts her arms around me and says, you know, Grandma, I love you. And it's just, it's just, it's just wonderful. Um, I encourage everybody I, I meet to become a, an organ donor. I share my story. I have a picture of Caitlin um, that I take around with me. Her mother takes comfort a lot in the uh, fact that her daughter saved four lives. Um, two, the, the night that I had my transplant, uh, another lady got a, I got the left side and she got the right side and I believe there was a heart transplant and a kidney transplant also. Um, her mother takes comfort. I think people grieve in different way because the, uh, her father, I think, is still very ambivalent and maybe he feels that to embrace this, um, this idea that is giving up on his daughter, or, you know, easing the pain and he doesn't want to let go, uh, but he's still having a very tough time. In August of this year, I will be attending uh, a service for Caitlin and um, sharing that she saved my life, and this is something that means a lot to her mother. Um, last time I was here, I met with the uh, the pulmonary uh, therapist. Yes, and it kind of what it did was it really made me realize how much, how many people are involved in this whole process. Um, where would we be without the nurses? Where would we be without the pulmonary therapists? And you don't realize, you think, you, at the beginning, you're so grateful to your transplant team, which is, of course, appropriate, and the nurses who, who uh, took care of you, but it seems like it's much more involved than that, and I want to thank everybody here for their, um, their input. I'm, I'm in awe. I'm, I'm totally in admire every single one of you, as I do the, the pulmonary therapist, and I'm so grateful to all of you. And I thank you for having me here today to share my story. It was my pleasure. That's it. And I'm Carmen. <laughs> and I think most of you know who I am. I'm local. I am uh, the woman that had a full face transplant on Valentine's Day, 2013. I was originally attacked in my Thetford home in 2007, and I was doused with lye and on the 80% dern, which, of course, I was severely disfigured, and my scarring in my face and neck were to the point where it, my neck scars were intolerable. So five... About, well, four, four years after my attack, my doctor, which was Dr. Tonahawk, he was doing full face transplants. He had me in mind from 2009 to 2011, but he didn't say anything to me. And at the time, my eyesight, I had gotten, I was completely blind the first two years. I'd gotten some eyesight back, but I didn't watch or listen to any of the news. So I, I wasn't really aware that that was even an option. So I, he presented, you know, he asked me if I was interested. And at the time, I was very interested because I had synthetic corneas in both my eyes and I didn't have eyelids. And my corneas 
one had already dry, uh, had dried out and I needed it replaced. So I couldn't, it was really hard to keep them healthy without eyelids. And I, you know, I, I only had half a lift on the, the, the dot on the right. And, you know, I, I had some, some big issues going on. And I had these severe scars in my neck that I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't get rid of the pain. I, my heaviest dose of oxycodone, which all you can appreciate at one time was 480 milligrams a day. And I was in pain. My tolerance for narcotics was so high that they didn't even really help anymore that I had to take them. So I didn't go through withdrawals. So I was really in a hard spot for quite a, quite a while. And I went through the testing and he thought he could find me a match. I had already had 50 something surgeries prior to my face transplant. So he, I was a very high, you know, high sensitive person to be able to match somebody. So I got put on the list in December, 2011, and I waited 14 months for a match. And I, they found me a match. It wasn't complete. So I was going to be the first person in the world to have a face transplant without a complete match. And they felt strongly that they could deal with it. And I trusted them a hundred percent. And I, at being, I was a foreigner nurse. So I knew what the consequences were that I really needed it. I needed it. My, my daily quality of my life was was uh, spiraling down and I knew that I could not live any length of time on those kind of narcotics. So that was my main motivation. So I did receive a face transplant on Valentine's Day, which was a very big day in my mind because it was Valentine's Day. It was a day of love, the day of gifts. And I thought no matter what, this is going to work out. And so about three or four weeks later, after we went public, I ended up in a very high grade three, almost grade four rejection. And I was the only one in the world with a face transplant to pretty much fully reject. And Dr. Tonahawk came in and sat by my dad one morning and he wasn't with all the residents. I, I, this is at Brigham and Women's and I, and I sat up and he said, you know, I think we're going to have to take you back to surgery and renew your transplant. You know, we can't find anything that's, that's helping. They tried everything. So I, I cried and I said, you need to find something. At the time I was 44. I said, I'm 44 years old. I've already lived three lifetimes and I'm not going back. So you need to find something because I won't survive because I don't want to. So he said, okay, and sure enough, they found an off-use uh, chemotherapy drug called Campath, and they, even though that came with a 2 to 10% risk of death, they gave me just a small dose of it, and that's what worked. And so I have done extremely well. I've had rejection episodes on occasion, but now over four years later, I'm doing very well in the blessing one of the very many, many blessings that came through my face transplant was that I did wean off narcotics. It was a different kind of hell that I did that in April of 2014, a little more than a year later. 
And I was blessed to have met my donor's daughter, and her name is Narinda. And we have gone across the country speaking at one time in 2014 and 15. And we are close, and I get to have a relationship with her, and, and it means so much to her. She easily donated her mother's face to me. Her mother, Cheryl Danelli Ryder, was 56 years old at the time. She had high blood pressure. She had a major stroke, and, and, and she was a, not only was she an organ donor, she was also a tissue donor. So that when they approached Narinda, she, she knew it was what her mother would want to do. And so this, made it, this has made such a big difference in my life to have that connection with her. And I know even now, you know, even now, she, she sees her mother, she sees her mother's face. She sees her mother in me. And, and uh, that gives her a, a lot of comfort. And I am grateful on a daily level. She gave me, I had pictures of her in Narinda, of my donor in Narinda. I have Cheryl's scarf, and I tie it up on one of my uh, doorknobs in my apartment. So every time I walk by, I see that. I, I appreciate her so much. And yes, I, even though it's been a more than four years, I've accepted her face as my own. But, you know, there isn't, I don't know if there's a time I look in the mirror today and not think of her. So, you know, and I appreciate, I appreciate that gift so much because it is what has given me the ability to stay here. And I appreciate all of you that, that are part of this, this great big team that, and has a very difficult job at times to approach people and, and wait for people to come to the conclusion if, if they choose to donate organs. And even faces, and, and you know, faces aren't a necessarily a necessity for, for life. It was for me. I wasn't going to live without a dramatic change, and I knew that. So for me, it didn't, it didn't save my life immediately. It saved my life over the long term because I wasn't going to survive. So to me, it was as valuable, as important as any other organ. So thank you. Thank you for what you do. Again, I, I think none of us would be able to say this as well as all of you. You truly are the voices, uh, so thank you. And next, I, after all these 10 years, 18 years of doing this job, I'm never less than amazed and honored at what all of these people do and what you do. So I would like to see if, um, would it be okay if people asked you some questions? Do you mind? Uh, are there anybody here that would like to ask a question? <laughs> there are nurses in this room, aren't they? You're always, why, why, why? You know. Oh, wonderful. No, my question is not for the particular participants, which thank you so much for coming, but as a nurse, we've all 
probably made the call to the organ donation bank asking, you know, and going through the questions for our person who's just deceased, um, is he or she an appropriate donor? And I don't know if this is appropriate for you to now tell us about the age, even though we might have a 94-year-old, and, you know, are there certain contraindications that Thank you for asking that question. I certainly can answer it. And um, actually, we go um, up to the age of 86 uh, for organ donation. And um, as some people, sometimes we meet them and we're talking about it, they say, well, maybe they've been exposed to hepatitis C or HIV. And those are no longer contraindications because as we know, there are treatments. And so those are opportunity for people to donate. So up to the age of 86, when actually when I started this, it was up to the age of 80. So we are, every day is a new frontier on the transplant side. So more opportunities uh, for people. So thank you for asking that question. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you talk about the change in your name? Um, yes, um, we are now, um, you'll hear us referred to as New England Donor Services. And that's because we've had a great opportunity to become affiliated with another organ uh, procurement organization, Life Choice, uh, which is part uh, in Connecticut and Bay State. And so together, always it's been we work together for the opportunity for people to be transplanted under the same rules and regulations, but we've operated as different um, institutions, so to speak. Now we are not the same, but we're affiliated. If you think of um, Boston, for example, we hear about partners, and partners is like Mass General and the Brigham. They're different institutions, uh, but they are under one umbrella. So it's a great opportunity and um, for more people to be transplanted and for us to work together. You know, as a Dartmouth-Hitchcock, you have many affiliates, I think, uh, different hospitals. It's kind of that. Um. So next, yeah, sure. Uh, Mary, what exactly do you do as a volunteer at the Oregon Service? Well, the nice thing about volunteering for the um, New, England, New England donor services is that you, you it's not a commitment for, for you know, you don't feel like you have to be at every event. They they announce that, oh, like, we got I got an email saying this event was happening. Are you available? And I said, yes, I am. And when I got a call about the... Um, the therapists uh, speaking, I was happy to do that. And there was one other event that I, you know, I haven't been a, a, a volunteer for very long, but there was a fundraising event. Uh, motors, it was awesome. There were something like a thousand motorcycles. Last the Ride for Life. The Ride for Life, yeah, all these. And it was raining, and I think a thousand people had shown up, and we didn't think anyone hardly would show up. <laughs> 600 motorcycles and they were they would they looked really awesome and it was kind of a, a great thing I volunteered at that event but I, I just wait for opportunities and I think the next thing I will do is um, set up the, the things we do are things like set up an information booth at local fairs that type of thing and I haven't done that yet but I plan on it and it means that I can do my traveling obviously I have a you know my, my I've suddenly become very popular with my family <laughs> They all want me to visit and um, 
So, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I can come and go as I please and still say, and there's so many volunteers. There's always people available for all the events. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. Um, and, and the other thing is that after a, uh, after a lung transplant, you're kind of scared to commit to anything. It's like, if I make a decision too soon, if I get a job that's, that's um, like a, a big commitment or I, I volunteer to look after an older person, suddenly they become dependent on me. I'm just f afraid this isn't going to be right for me, so I needed to give myself a little time. So this was ideal. And the, 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 the mother of the, uh, the donor in one of her letters to me kind of expressed that she would like me to give back, which I've always done anyway. Um, and join the, uh, yeah, not join that, but, but get people to volunteer yeah, to, to donate their, donate life. Can I say that as well? Yeah, thanks. I know you do a lot because you kind of live in sort of the neighborhood that I do, and I see yeah. your name in the newspaper a lot. <laughs> um, so the first few years after Nick passed, I wasn't working, um, and this is what I did. Um, so one of the big things that I did was I considered a, I was considered I, I won't say I am now um, a DMV ambassador and so I actually did a whole series because um, before 2012 I believe or 13 I can't remember now um, when you checked yes in Vermont that you wanted to be an organ donor on your license it actually went nowhere um, so now there's actually a database so when people check yes the, there's an online database that um, records that so we were just kind of pushing that and um, I went around with, um, his name is Matt Boger, and we went um, six visits to the DMV and met with every single employee, and I shared my story six times in like six weeks and um, went there, and then for like the next year, I would go once or twice a month to Montpelier, bring all the materials and bring goodies and just tell them how awesome they were doing um, and just really encouraging the, the, win the people at the window um, to ask that question. and. Um, you know, I'd see them in the grocery store or something. They'd be like, guess what I did today? And, um, you know, and then I had, like, I made up a little thing about my story and had it on the DMV wall. And, and so many people go to Montpelier and many of my family, people that I don't even know, um, who would say, like, oh, I heard that story, you know. Oh, and, like, so it was just a nice connection there. So that was something really big that, um, that I did and was a part of and was really, really proud of. And the same thing, going to local hospitals, um, and setting up booths and um, really just getting the word out there. I did a lot within the school um, that I work at now. So like I said, lately um, I've been full-time now preschool teacher for four years. Um, so, and I have three kiddos, three, five, and seven. So life's pretty busy. Um, but I was so excited. I told um, Jen Cray, who works for New England Donor Services, that I really wanted to get back into it because it has been six years and I felt like my grief was climbing back up and, and this is my therapy right here. Um, so I said, I, I got to do talks. I got to do something. And I've done like three things in the past like two months. So, so. Okay, next. I just wanted to, I don't know if you've seen the quilt up here. This is something that our... Uh, donor family uh, liaisons, trying to come up with the right word, at the Oregon Bank, they actually have a whole aftercare program. And one of the things that they offer to donor families is to make a square to be involved in the quilt. And I think we have nine or 10 of them 14. now. 14. Uh, and it's, it's really wonderful. And it, the 
the only requirements are like the dimensions and so families can however they want to represent uh, their person that was a donor it's a it's a really wonderful thing so next um, yes just add to that yes that these are on display at our office as constant reminders mm -hmm. as well so we have them on display during donate like month and other activities we travel with some some have been retired and do not leave the wall because they've been there for so long we wouldn't want to um, have them just um, Damage. Damage, thank you. I was thinking destroy them. Like, no, that's too strong. Um, but it's a nice reminder to us throughout our um, base office in Waltham to have these there, as well as um, quotes from families stenciled on the walls throughout the organization. So. Can I tell you something from my donors there? I didn't realize. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just want to thank um, these four very courageous women. I think one of the things that resonated with me and what I um, will obviously take away from their stories is, you know, they obviously very much appreciate life and had to get to that one of the darkest days of their life to appreciate that. And really us hearing that story should be a gift. It's a gift to us. And that's why I have that sign behind my desk. Yesterday's the past, tomorrow's the future, but today's a gift. So thank you. Um, I have the great pleasure of presenting all of you with um, an award, and it's basically the Workplace Partnership Award that's um, given by the Department of Health and Human Services, and it's really around a campaign that um, encourages workplace partners to share the uh, the need for organ, don organ and tissue donation, and Dartmouth participated last year in the Let Life Bloom campaign. Um, since the, the this campaign uh, started back in 2011, 450,000 people have uh, made their wishes known on the Donate Life Registry. Um, last year, over 1,000 hospitals participated um, with their partnering OPO, and um, because of the need of 120,000 people waiting, um, the list is growing every day. So your partnership and all the awareness and things that you have done here has been recognized with the the Gold Recognition Award. In 2016, uh, Dartmouth um, base, contributed to that through six organ donors and 33 tissue donors that provided organs and tissues for a lot of people, so thank you for that. And we know that doesn't happen without great collaboration between your staff and the New England Donor Services staff. So we're here to thank you for that and to congratulate you on all of your efforts, and you're probably already beginning your 2017 campaign. <laughs> so we'll, I'm sure I'll be back next year. So congratulations, and here's your award. Is there anybody here that would like to grab it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm Karen and Bev Poljasek. We just wanted, um, as the leaders, and we know even the, every nurse at the bedside is a leader, um, but... So, good to see, good to see you. again, grateful for all of your work. Thank you so much. Yes. 
there you go. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you very, very much. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to. Only eight gold in all of New England. And again, we'd like to thank everyone as um, Kelly, Carrie, Mary, <laughs> and Carmen for sharing their voices and stories with us today and for you attending. So uh, thank you, and I hope you'll come out and be part of the flag raising with us.